Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual assault that some people may find offensive and may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. If you or a loved one have been the victim of sexual assault, support and resources are available 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE or online at rainn.org. After 28-year-old Trisha Miley was attacked on April 19, 1989, the whole city mourned, holding candlelight vigils outside the hospital and erecting a shrine for her in Central Park. Mayor Ed Koch said, Millions of New Yorkers of every religion on earth are united in prayer for the young woman who lies comatose. Let ours be the faith that moves mountains as we ask God to heal this young woman. On May 1st, 12 days after the attack, Trisha woke up. She would have a long road to recovery, but she would survive. The city collectively rejoiced. The next day, there was another shocking assault. Three young black men forced a 38-year-old black woman off the street and up to a roof at knife point. After the men robbed and raped her, they pushed her off of the roof and she fell 50 feet. Miraculously, she survived. There was little coverage of this attack. In contrast, there were 406 news items about the Central Park case within the first two weeks of the assault. Reverend Herbert Daughtry, a civil rights activist, questioned why this equally appalling crime went relatively unnoticed. He asked, quote, Would it have been different if Trisha was a black person? Most blacks would automatically say yes, and whites would say no, and we get into a debate over whether there's a difference. No matter how it's answered, it feeds into an inflammatory climate, end quote. At the center of it all sat five young men, aged 14 to 16, accused of a truly heinous crime against Trisha Miley. And while the community questioned how racial bias had impacted the news coverage and the actions of police, no one questioned the Central Park Five's guilt or innocence. That had already been determined the moment the account of their night of wilding first hit newsstands. The description of this violent rampage, perpetrated by young Black and Latino men, was readily accepted as fact. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. Today, we're continuing our discussion of the Central Park jogger case. Last week, we followed the police investigation of the assault on 28-year-old Trisha Miley on April 19, 1989. Five teenagers, now known as the Central Park Five, confessed to participating in the attack after extensive conversations with police. 
This week, we'll examine the two criminal trials and see how the evidence against the teenagers was presented to a jury. We'll also discuss new evidence that was discovered in 2002 and how that impacted their verdicts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. On Friday, April 21st, 1989, less than 48 hours after the attack on Trisha Miley, charges were brought against 15-year-old Antron McRae, 14-year-old Kevin Richardson, 14-year-old Raymond Santana, 15-year-old Yusuf Salam, and 16-year-old Corey Wise for rape and attempted murder. Though they had all confessed to participating in the attack, the moment that the boys were charged, all of them recanted their statements. They alleged that they didn't understand what they were confessing to and the police had misled them. They hadn't realized that just by saying they had been present for Trisha's attack, even though they all denied taking part in it, they were still culpable. They all pleaded not guilty. The four younger boys were sent to Spofford Juvenile Detention Center, a 200-inmate dormitory-like complex in the Bronx. Corey, being 16, was sent to Rikers Island, New York City's main jail complex with close to 17,000 adult inmates. Within days, he was jumped by a group of 28 men. Guards managed to intervene before he was seriously injured, but Corey was kept in isolation after that for his own protection until his trial arrived. Each defendant was represented by a different attorney, but their legal backgrounds were varied. One primarily handled divorce cases and another was more focused on the racial politics in the case. Only one of the lawyers had extensive experience in criminal defense. Even he was sometimes hampered by the others in experience. For example, Kevin Richardson's lawyer released a copy of his client's confession to the press with the intention of demonstrating his innocence. But instead of printing, I was the one that didn't rape her, the press used several of the most damning parts of his statement out of context. It only reinforced the narrative of a wild gang out on a rampage that night. The assistant district attorney, 36-year-old Elizabeth Letterer, had worked alongside the police from the morning Trisha Miley was discovered. She had personally interviewed all five suspects on camera as they gave their confessions, building her case from the moment she sat down with them. But the confessions were inconsistent. The teenagers gave conflicting versions of how the attack happened and who was responsible. They all pointed the finger at each other for Trisha's sexual assault. Yusuf named Corey, Kevin named Antron, Raymond and Kevin named each other. Not only did it complicate the narrative, it meant there would be at least two trials because defendants who accuse each other can't be tried together. Charges had been filed so swiftly, it took a few months before Letterer received the DNA results from the lab. 
She hoped that they would provide more concrete links between the teenagers and the attack to bolster her case. In 1989, DNA evidence was still in its infancy. There were only so many things a test could tell you, and it required a robust enough sample to produce results. Several blood samples were collected from the scene, but all forensics could say definitively was that they were all type A. Youssef and Kevin were type A, but so was Trisha Miley. It seemed possible that all the blood was hers. After all, she had nearly bled to death, losing so much blood that it dyed her white t-shirt red. And yet, despite the blood all over the crime scene, they didn't find any blood on any of the teenagers' clothes or shoes. Semen samples were collected from Trisha's jogging pants and the rape kit. When the samples were processed, the match pattern was weak, only producing half the indicators needed to confirm a conclusive match. However, of those indicators, none matched the teenagers. The tests were labeled inconclusive, citing that the samples weren't robust enough to provide reliable results. This was a kick in the gut for Elizabeth Letterer. Without any definitive forensic evidence, her entire case rested on the written and taped confessions. At pretrial hearings, all five defense attorneys argued that the confessions were involuntarily made. Under New York law, a statement is involuntary if it was obtained through the use of physical force, the threat of physical force, or by any undue pressure that impaired the suspect's judgment about whether or not to make the statement. The teenagers were questioned over long periods of time, some held overnight, sitting for as many as 30 hours of interrogation. Kevin, Raymond, and Corey reported that officers had threatened them with violence during their interrogations. Kevin and Raymond stated that the officers, an inch away from their faces, repeatedly screamed at them to confess when their parents were out of the room. Raymond said that while he was questioned, one officer held a cattle prod. Corey, who never had a guardian present for questioning, alleged that one of the detectives slapped him across the face four times, so hard it made his ear ring for a week. The defense attorneys also alleged that officers made statements to all of their clients along the lines of, just tell the truth and you can go home. But they argued police weren't satisfied with the boys' versions of events because none of them mentioned the attack on Trisha. So they kept pressing for details for hours. Eventually, they said the teenagers told them what they wanted to hear under the promise that they would be allowed to leave. This too made the statements involuntary. In addition, the confessions included words typical of police jargon. They described the couple on the tandem bike as the cyclists, the other kids they were with as numerous friends, and their movements through the park that night as eastbound and northbound. Were these words typical of teenagers or had they been prompted by the police? The only evidence against Youssef Salam was the verbal confession he made to detectives before his mother stopped the interview. Attorney Bobby Burns alleged that anything Youssef said before his mother arrived should be barred from evidence because he had been questioned without a parent present. The defense presented these arguments in February 1990 to the presiding judge, Thomas Galligan. 
insisting that he bar the confessions from trial. Galligan was a World War II veteran and had served on the bench for the last 15 years, and though judges were typically assigned randomly to cases, he had been hand-selected by the senior court administrators to preside over the Central Park trial. They assigned the case to Galligan because they knew he could withstand the pressure. However, the defense attorneys had another theory about this appointment. Judge Thomas Galligan had a bit of a reputation among defense circles, labeled a pro-prosecution judge. They thought he saw himself in partnership with the prosecution, tasked with the necessary job of ridding the city of a criminal scourge. The inmates at Rikers Island sometimes referred to the jail complex as Galligan's Island, because he had ordered so many of their incarcerations. He was also nicknamed Father Time, for the lengthy sentences he doled out. After eight weeks of pretrial hearings, Galligan issued a written ruling about the confessions. The judge, the ADA, and the defense attorneys were all well aware that without these statements, there was no case. Coming up, Judge Galligan makes his ruling. Now back to the story. The assistant district attorney, 36-year-old Elizabeth Letterer, had a major hurdle to face in her case against the Central Park Five. If Judge Thomas Galligan ruled that the taped and written confessions were involuntarily given and barred them from trial, her case would fall apart. On February 23, 1990, Galligan issued a 116-page written ruling. He wrote that Corey's accusation of being slapped by a detective was not supported by what the judge saw in the taped interviews. Corey had no bruises on his face and showed no signs of fear or trauma. Galligan discounted any misconduct in Yusuf's questioning. He seemed to intentionally mislead police about his age and he should not derive a benefit from his deliberate falsification. In addition, the judge felt that the interview process had taken as many as 30 hours because the case was complicated, not because police intentionally extended the sessions. With each interview, they heard about more boys involved and were overwhelmed by the sheer number of suspects. It didn't constitute coercive pressure. Galligan also dismissed the allegations that police told the teenagers they could go home if they made a statement about Trisha Miley. He wrote, The only basis in the record for this proposition is the defendant's own testimony, which I find incredible. The motion to suppress was denied. With this ruling, Antron, Raymond, and Youssef would be tried first on April 16, 1990, almost a year to the day after the attack on Trisha Miley. While waiting for the April trial date, Trisha provided new information about the timeline of the attack. She had spent months in hospitals and rehab facilities, regaining the ability to walk and speak. She still had no memory of what occurred on April 19, 1989, but she was now able to provide details to police about her jogging route. Based on the route she described and her usual jogging pace, police now believed that the assault had occurred between 9.10 and 9.15 p.m., an hour earlier than they had initially estimated. 
The reasoning that the attack happened closer to 10 p.m. was based on the timeline of the other assaults in the park. Most of the boys had written in their statements that Trisha's assault happened after the attack on John Laughlin at 9.40 p.m. In addition, the forensics lab discovered additional semen on one of Trisha's socks that had been previously overlooked. Over time, bacteria turned the semen stain yellow, making it stand out now on the white sock. And while the previous samples had produced a weak match pattern, this sample yielded all of the necessary indicators to confirm a conclusive match. Tests showed that the semen on the sock matched the sample recovered from the rape kit. Therefore, the owner of this semen was undoubtedly the rapist. However, the DNA profile was not a match to any of the Central Park Five. This evidence suggested that possibly only one person had sexually assaulted Trisha Miley, not a group of people, and that person wasn't any of the young men currently on trial. Letterer was perplexed, unsure how to reconcile this information with the confessions. In light of the evidence, the trial was pushed back to June 25th. This gave ample time for both the defendants and prosecution to digest the new information and fit it into their approach. For Letterer, her new strategy emerged at the outset of her opening remarks in Antron, Raymond, and Youssef's trial. There was no doubt in Letterer's mind that the boys on trial were present for the rampage in the park. Even though the evidence was conflicting, there were two overwhelming truths. First, there were a dozen other witnesses that night, victims themselves of the teenagers. Second, all the boys confessed. With those two pillars to stand on, she stated, quote, If you use your common sense, you will find that these defendants are guilty of the savage attempted murder, rape, sodomy, sexual abuse, and assault of Trisha Miley." End quote. She took the jury through the attack timeline, starting with the homeless man. She described how after beating and robbing him, the pack of boys continued, still looking for another victim. She used each subsequent event in the timeline to emphasize the group's lust for violence, each victim still not enough to quench them, even after they assaulted Trisha Miley. She said, quote, You will see as you watch that videotape how Antron McRae coldly and calmly described how Trisha Miley was struck with a pipe, about how her clothes were removed, and how, one after the other, Several young men took turns getting on top of her while others held her down." End quote. Letterer confronted the DNA evidence head-on, reminding the jury that this was a large group of teenagers. If the DNA didn't match these suspects, it just meant that a sixth perpetrator had slipped through the hands of justice. But these teens had been caught, and at the end of the trial, they must be found guilty. Antron McRae's defense attorney, Mickey Joseph, was a seasoned defense lawyer, spending years with the Legal Aid Society. He used his opening statement to make it clear to the jury that the only evidence against his client were his own words. There was no physical evidence, no DNA to tie him to the crime. He stressed this again and again, 
Antron would not be on trial without that statement, which he alleged was coerced by police. He said, quote, I suggest to you, when you hear the evidence relating to these statements, you will see that it's not as clean as the prosecution would want you to believe. I'm not going to tell you that a police officer will come in here and say, I admit I pushed this kid too far. But if you analyze the testimony, that's what you're going to find, end quote. Youssef's attorney, Bobby Burns, presented a similar argument, that the confession was improperly obtained, but he described a larger police conspiracy against Youssef Salam that, because of his race and religion, top police brass used him as a scapegoat to solve a high-profile case quickly. Peter Rivera, who Raymond Santana's father gave his life savings to retain, also objected to the validity of the confession because, quote, much of the language that appears in that statement came from the lips and the mouths of the police officers, end quote. Elizabeth Lederer spent the initial days of the trial recreating the night of April 19, 1989 for the jury. She called seven victims from the park to the stand, each one painting a clear picture of events. They were, for the most part, clean-cut, gainfully employed white people who carried an air of automatic credibility. She wanted them to give the jury even more confidence in the validity of the teenagers' taped statements, combating the coercion claims. If the statements were coerced and the boys had nothing to do with this, how could these victims testify that they'd also been attacked by them on the 19th? When the three defense attorneys cross-examined the park witnesses, they asked each one to point out their attackers, with the exception of one of the tandem bikers who said he remembered Yusef because of his height, not one of the victims could identify the boys. But Lederer reminded the jury on redirect that these boys were acting in concert with the larger gang, and all of the defendants had admitted they were part of the group in the park that night. Lederer next called the detectives that interviewed the five defendants. Each one described how the teenagers had revealed more and more information of their own volition. All the detectives denied getting physical or promising the boys they could go home if they made a statement. Instead, the detectives testified they simply asked the teens, and then what happened? From their perspective, it had taken some time, but they had all eventually told the truth. Attorney Bobby Burns found this implausible and introduced evidence he felt proved such, Detective Thomas McKenna's interrogation notes. McKenna's written report of his interrogation with Youssef was the sole evidence against him, having never signed a statement. There were several additional details in McKenna's official report that were absent from his notes. Burns accused him of embellishing his client's words. But while Burns focused on trying to prove this point, he unwittingly opened the door for ADA Letterer to make a stronger case against Youssef than she previously had. She hadn't been able to introduce McKenna's notes into evidence herself, pursuant to trial procedure, but once Burns did, they were fair game for her to discuss as well. While Burns used only select statements, Letterer had McKenna read Youssef's entire statement from his notes, including his description of the attack. 
Burns had even made copies of the notes for each juror. So as McKenna read Yusef's reasoning for the attack, it was something to do, it was fun, the jury read right along with him. It made Yusef's confession real in a way that McKenna's testimony hadn't. Letterer next aimed to make the jury sympathize with Trisha Miley. Using 30 poster-sized color photos, Letterer displayed each injury sustained in the attack one by one. Then, Letterer asked the criminal pathologist on the stand to posit the source of each injury. For example, the long cracks in her skull and the star-shaped abrasion on her left cheek. Could that have been caused by a blunt object? The pathologist said yes. She continued, when you say a blunt object, are the injuries that you've just described consistent with being struck with a rock? The pathologist agreed. Then the ADA picked up a small rock collected from the scene in an evidence bag with a large visible bloodstain. She asked, could it have been this rock? Again, the pathologist agreed. Letterer and the defense attorneys all saw the impact the photos had on the jurors. They were shaken by Trisha's grave injuries. Some shook their heads in disgust, and others covered their mouths in horror. Their emotions would only be eclipsed when presented with Trisha Miley herself, who took the stand on July 16th. Letterer hesitated to put Trisha through the ordeal of testifying, but she knew she couldn't live with herself if she held that card and the teenagers walked free. When Trisha was escorted to the stand, supported by a court officer, the entire room fell silent. Trisha testified that she had no memory of the attack. She remembered canceling dinner plans with a friend around 5 p.m. that day. Then she woke up in the hospital on May 26th. But Letterer had other purposes for calling her to testify. DNA analysis found semen from her boyfriend on her jogging tights, but it didn't match the sample from the rape kit. Letterer needed Trisha to explain how it got there to avoid the defense alleging that her rapist was actually her boyfriend. Trisha stated that she had intercourse with her boyfriend three days before the attack and, immediately following, had put on her jogging tights and gone for a run. She then wore the same tights on April 19th when she was assaulted. Letterer asked Trisha to name some lasting effects of her injuries. Trisha described issues with balance, coordination, and double vision. She added, quote, I also have lost my sense of smell completely and totally. That hasn't come back at all, end quote. When it was time for the defense to cross-examine Trisha, all three attorneys declined to ask questions. She had been through enough already. For her final presentation, Elizabeth Letterer played the taped confessions. Letterer watched the jury's reactions as they listened to Antron McRae's words. Quote, We charged her, and like, we got her on the ground. Everybody started hitting her and stuff, and she was on the ground. Everybody stomping and everything, and she got hit. Then we each, like, I grabbed one arm, this other kid grabbed one arm, and we grabbed her legs and stuff. And then we all took turns getting on her, like getting on top of her, end quote. Raymond Santana said, 
Kevin was covering her mouth, smacking her, saying, shut up. He picked up the brick and he hit her with the brick twice. On the tape, Letterer asked what made him eventually leave the park. Raymond replied, I left when my conscience told me to leave. Then Letterer rested her case. Mickey Joseph needed to answer a burning question for the jury. Why would Antron lie about attacking Trisha? Joseph called the person he thought would most clearly illustrate how Antron was coerced into confessing, Bobby McRae. He had been at his stepson's side throughout the entire questioning process. Bobby described intense pressure from police to admit involvement. He said, quote, They told Antron, Tell me what I want to know. Put yourself right with them and you may be a witness and go home. And if not, he was going to jail. End quote. Bobby stated that police pulled him aside twice and encouraged him to persuade Antron to confess. He didn't feel like they'd be able to leave until Antron made a statement. Eventually, he told his stepson, quote, I know you're telling me the truth. You tell these people what they want to hear and you'll go home, end quote. He said he was shocked when Antron wasn't let go afterward. He thought he'd made a deal with detectives and they just looked at him like he was crazy. Letterer's cross-examination of Bobby McRae was pointed. She asked, so you told your son to lie? He had. She continued, you told him to lie because you believed that that was how he would avoid going to jail, is that right? That was correct. Letterer confirmed, you honestly believed that after Antron admitted to the police that he was on top of that jogger, that he had held her down while other people raped her, that he hit her and assaulted other people in the park, did you honestly believe, after he signed that statement, after you signed that statement, that he would be permitted to leave the precinct? Bobby angrily confirmed that, yes, that's what he thought would happen. Bobby Burns called his own client to testify to what had happened on the 19th. Yusef Salam flat out denied seeing or touching, let alone assaulting, Trisha Miley. He had gone to the park but left after the run-in with the tandem bikers. Yusef wore a well-tailored suit and carried two books with him to the stand, the Quran and 99 Names for Allah. With her cross-examination, Letterer wanted to remind the jury that the well-spoken, clean-cut young man in front of them was accused of some of the most brutal violence that night. She wanted to draw out the hot-tempered, hostile teen she saw lying under the surface. Therefore, she pushed his buttons, quizzing him on specific details of the attack, knowing how outspoken he'd been about his innocence. It worked. Halfway through her questions, Letterer and Yusef were yelling over each other as she accused him point by point of his crimes, and to each claim he shouted, no. It left the jury confused about Yusef. They thought, wouldn't an innocent young man accused of such horrible crimes be frightened? Instead, Yusef looked angry and belligerent and guilty. Attorney Peter Rivera focused on the fact that for most of his interrogation, Raymond Santana's only guardian in the room was his grandmother, who spoke little English. 
He argued that because of this, she wasn't a suitable representative of Raymond's interests, and his testimony was unlawfully obtained. However, when he put Navidad Colon on the stand, she was able to understand much more than Rivera had led the jury to believe, undermining his entire argument. When his presentation concluded, the defense rested. In her closing arguments, Lederer urged the jury to review the taped confessions during their deliberations. Watch them until they had no shadow of a doubt. The boys were guilty. Defense attorney Mickey Joseph advised just the opposite. Watch the tapes enough and you'll hear the police speaking through the mouths of these young boys. After six weeks of proceedings, the fate of the teenagers now rested with the jury. Coming up, the jury give their verdict. Now back to the story. After a six-week trial, the jury was sent to deliberate on three of the Central Park Five on August 6, 1990. The panel of 10 men and two women now determined the validity of the charges against 16-year-old Antron McRae, 16-year-old Yusef Salam, and 15-year-old Raymond Santana. After 10 days of discussion, they returned their verdict. All three teenagers were found guilty of rape, assault, robbery, and riot. They were cleared of the attempted murder charge, however. At sentencing, Judge Galligan said, quote, the intensity of the violence on April 19, 1989 is unfathomable and no rational mind can explain it. There was a time when young people went into Central Park with baseball bats to enjoy a baseball game, but no more. A 12-inch pipe in the park is now an instrument of fun. There has been no acknowledgement of wrongdoing here, no remorse, only defiance." End quote. He sentenced the boys the maximum punishment for juveniles, five to 10 years. They would serve their sentences in juvenile facilities until they turned 18, after which they would be transferred to the adult population. Their families sat in the gallery in shock. Bobby McRae wept. Outside the courthouse, supporters of the teenagers sang, We Shall Overcome. Public opinion on the verdict was entirely polarized. It was seen as either proof that the system worked or proof that the system was rigged against people of color. From Manhattan District Attorney Robert Morgenthau's standpoint, justice has been done. Morgenthau didn't see any connection between race and the guilty verdict, explaining, quote, From the beginning, I have insisted that this was not a racial case. This city is ill-served by those who have sought to exploit it to divide the races and advance their own private agendas, end quote. ADA Elizabeth Lederer enjoyed her victory, but knew she could only hold on to the win for so long. She had another case to try, 17-year-old Corey Wise and 15-year-old Kevin Richardson waited for her. On October 22, 1990, only six weeks later, Lederer stood before the jury convened for Corey and Kevin. Her opening statement laid out basically the same case that she had presented against the other teenagers. She would bring the witnesses from the park that night, 
who would describe their attackers, and the jury would hear the boys describe those same attacks in their own words, as well as their assault of Trisha Miley. Lederer was bolstered by the fact that she had already won guilty verdicts with this strategy. Not only did she have practice from the first case, but the other guilty verdict would go a long way in helping her to convince the jury here. The seed was already planted in their minds. Throughout Lederer's opening statement, Corey was visibly upset. He muttered under his breath, lies, lies, lies. Once she concluded, while the jury filed out of the room, Corey reached a breaking point. He cried out, quote, no, 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 I can't take this. Oh, Lord Jesus, no, it's not all right. It's wrong. No, no, this woman's lying. Oh, Lord Jesus, she's lying. End quote. Attorney Howard Diller, who hadn't tried a major criminal case before, previewed a meager defense for his client in his opening statement. He didn't dispute the validity of Kevin's confession and made no mention of coercion. Instead, he pointed out to the jury that in those tapes, Kevin said he was not a participant, only a spectator. The Richardson family was shocked by this approach and tried to hire another attorney for Kevin, but Judge Galligan didn't want the change in representation to delay the trial or possibly lay the groundwork for a mistrial, so he denied the request. Attorney Colin Moore's approach couldn't have been more different than Diller's. Moore was politically outspoken with NAACP pedigree. He had taken on Corey's case pro bono and would spend the entire trial showing the jury how and why Corey Wise's statement was coerced. He stressed for them how much Corey's statement changed over his four interviews, which were recorded as part of 17 hours of questioning. He asked the jury what happened between those interviews in all that time when the camera was switched off. Once again, Letterer paraded the park victims. She called the detectives to describe their interrogations. She had the clinical pathologist walk the jury through the poster-sized images of Trisha's injuries. She played the videotapes, letting the boys describe their attack themselves. And once again, Trisha Miley took the stand, though she still had no memory of the events of the 19th. But while the previous defense lawyers had declined to question, Colin Moore took the opportunity. It was another political statement. He had seen plenty of women forced to suffer interrogation after being assaulted, and he didn't think Trisha should be treated differently. So for 35 minutes, he tried to prove the boyfriend theory, that her rapist was actually her boyfriend. But Trisha held firm to her explanation, strongly answering all of Moore's questions. To the jury, it didn't help Moore's case. It just made him look like a bully. And that characterization overshadowed his otherwise deft handling of a case to prove coercion. For example, when he cross-examined Detective John Hardigan, he asked, You wanted Corey to tell you that he was involved in the rape of Trisha Miley. That's what you wanted, isn't it? Hardigan replied, I wanted him to tell the truth. But Moore kept pushing, asking, This was your version of the truth, right? Hardigan said finally, that's what I believed to be the truth. 
Howard Diller called Kevin Richardson's family to the stand, both to talk about his client's character and to give their accounts of the interrogation process. Kevin's older sister, Angela, who had been present for part of the questioning, described how Detective Hardigan instructed Kevin what to write in his statement. But on cross-examination, Letterer attacked her credibility. If Angela knew the statement was false, why had she signed off on it as Kevin's acting guardian? Angela scoffed and denied signing the statement. Letterer caught her in the lie. She presented Angela with a copy of the statement with her signature. When Angela denied that it was her signature, Letterer later brought in a handwriting expert to confirm it was Angela's signature. It cast major doubts on her credibility to the jury. After only four weeks of proceedings, the jury was sent to deliberate on November 30, 1990. The seven women and five men discussed the evidence for 12 days, even longer than the first trial. But in the end, the verdict was the same, guilty. Unlike the previous trial, Corey and Kevin were found guilty of different charges. Kevin, only 14 at the time of the attack, was convicted on every count, including attempted murder. He was sentenced to the maximum for juveniles, five to 10 years. 17-year-old Corey was acquitted of rape and murder, but convicted of first-degree assault, sexual abuse, and riot. He was sentenced to five to 15 years, ineligible for the juvenile limitations. He received the longest sentence, even though he was convicted of the fewest charges. As Corey was escorted out of the courtroom past Elizabeth Letterer, he hissed, you'll pay for this. Jesus is going to get you. In 1995, after serving the minimum sentence of five years, the Central Park Five were eligible for parole. However, during that time, they had all maintained their innocence. The parole board didn't look favorably on this, writing, quote, One of the problems is, when you deny the crime, participating in sexual offender treatment doesn't have productive results, end quote. All five were denied parole multiple times. They were eventually eligible for conditional release. This is granted when an inmate's accrued time off for good behavior equals the remaining time on his sentence. Raymond was released in December of 1995 after almost six years. Antron in September of 1996 after almost seven years and Youssef and Kevin in the summer of 1997, after eight years. Again, Corey received harsher punishment because he was classified as an adult. He spent 13 years on Rikers Island before new evidence was discovered that called all of the verdicts into question. Two days before the attack on Trisha Miley in April of 1989, another woman was sexually assaulted in Central Park Someone else intervened and scared her attacker away, but he was never caught. The woman told police he had fresh stitches on his chin. When they checked hospital records, they determined that her attacker was most likely 18-year-old Matias Reyes, but he was never questioned. The victim moved away shortly after the attack 
and stopped cooperating with police, the case dried up. Matias was eventually arrested on August 5, 1989. By then, he was known as the East Side Slasher. During the summer of 1989, he attacked and assaulted five more women, killing one of them in front of her children. As it would turn out, he had a sixth victim, Trisha Miley. In the winter of 2001, Matias told a prison employee that he had committed a crime that another person was serving time for. By January of 2002, his statement had made its way to the state inspector's office, and in February, the Manhattan district attorney was notified. In his confession, Matias accurately described the location of Trisha's attack and what she had been wearing. His account matched the pattern of her injuries. He even provided details police hadn't been able to explain previously. For example, her shoes had been removed. Matias told them that he took the small pouch that was attached to her laces because it held her apartment key. He planned to rob her after raping her, but couldn't get into her building. Police had never been able to locate her keys. Trisha confirmed she kept them in a pouch on her shoe. In addition to these details, Matias provided a DNA sample. It matched both the sock sample and the rape kit. With this new evidence, the case was reopened. The DA's office reviewed all of the evidence against the Central Park Five and tried to determine if there was any connection between them and Matias Reyes. But their investigation overwhelmingly indicated that Matias acted alone. First, only his DNA was recovered from the rape kit. In addition, Matias had tied up other assault victims in the same fashion as Trisha, with her hands in front of her face. He also provided accurate details the boys didn't know themselves. With all five other assaults, he had always acted alone. The DA's office eventually determined the Central Park Five's confessions were false. On December 19, 2002, a judge ruled to vacate all convictions against Antron McRae, Youssef Salam, Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, and Corey Wise. Once again, the decision brought differing reactions. Many people still believed that the five young men had to have been involved in the assault in some way. They felt that Matias Reyes was simply the sixth man. But those on the other side of the debate believed that an overzealous media and police fed on the public's own prejudices towards young Black and Latino men to weave a tale of wilding that was so grisly, it had to be true. Since the reversal, the Central Park Five have worked with the Innocence Project on changes that can be made to police procedure to prevent false confessions. They advocate for surveillance of all interactions between police and suspects. If the video cameras were on from the moment detectives started their questions, they allege that we would have seen a very different picture. In 2014, the Central Park Five settled a civil lawsuit against the city of New York for $41 million, roughly $1 million for each year they spent in prison. But they continue to speak about their experiences and remind the public 
that justice will never really be done. Raymond said, quote, How much is a year in jail worth in a child's life? Will it ever be enough? Not for what we've lost. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new case to explore. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Not Guilty is written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.